0: For those of you who don't know me, my name is Ozan Farin, and we are—we have been, rather, doing a series on Christmas. And so, a week ago or so, Chris Gorman preached on the genealogy, and as it turns out, there's pretty much any passage of the Bible now that you can preach on. It's tied to Christmas, I found out. When you preach on the genealogy, and you can bring it like that. Um, and then just this past Friday, Pastor Nick preached, I'm, I'm not the lead pastor here, I preach occasionally, I've been invited, and I'm an elder here, and I preach occasionally, and so I'm, I'm glad you're here, congratulations for being here. I mean, it's been, a, it's, been it's Christmas yesterday, and, and it's been a morning that, with all the snow and everything, and so uh, by virtue of the fact that you're here is nothing short of God's grace in my mind, so welcome. This is the final series in, in the Christmas messages that we're going to bring, and, and Christmas was yesterday, I know what a lot of you are thinking right now, Christmas was so yesterday, But really, every Sunday is Christmas. I told my wife that, I'm going to bring that. You know, I I just bring dad jokes now, and and my wife is probably at that point where she's just like, oh, no, it's happening. You know, it's happening. The dad jokes are just going to come more and more. And and we just read the Holy Catholic Church, and I just want to bring just a little bit of clarity to that because this is one that's often questioned in the Apostles' Creed. Just yesterday, uh, millions and billions of people celebrated Christmas morning. It wasn't limited to the Roman Catholic Church. It was... A celebration of God's church. And when we talk about the Catholic church, we're talking about the wholeness and the fullness of God's redeemed people, the church. And so when we say we believe in the holy Catholic church, we're we're saying we believe that God has redeemed the people for himself. he's, He's plucked them out from the fold and made them his own. And for many of us, this is a reminder of Jesus coming into the world. And it's one of the most celebrated holidays in the world as well. I looked this up. Among the top three, Christmas is is, is always one of the top three, depending on which study you're looking at. And then New Year's is also a very popular one. And then usually one of the top three is is Valentine's Day, it turns out. Um, I question that one, whether that's a celebration or an obligation. I'll let you work that out with your spouse. But Christmas is definitely among the top three of the most celebrated holidays. And that is for good reason, because we have much to celebrate And the focus of our attention is on Jesus Christ. We love God. God loves us, and I'm reminded of God's love this morning, but I'm also reminded of the danger of what I like to call the Santa complex. You know, when I go into the neighborhoods and we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'm having conversations with people, 95% or more of the people that I talk to who who proclaim uh, to be a Christian, and you ask them questions around what is it that makes you a Christian? 95 plus percent of the time we will hear something along the lines of because I am a good person. Right, And th- this is what I call the Santa complex. It's when, when we start to judge ourselves, we evaluate ourselves on whether we're on the naughty list or the goodliest list, not according to God's holy law, but according to a curve or some, some way of, of, if I look around and I say, well, I haven't stolen anything, I haven't you know, murdered anybody, I, therefore I'm, I'm not on the naughty list. Just a few days ago, I was, I was driving down the freeway and there was a sign up and it said, don't be on the naughty list, drive sober. You know, So we're kind of perpetuating this thing that I like to call the Santa complex. And when a person says something along those lines, what they're communicating is something like this. Either, I don't really need Jesus Christ, or Jesus did what he needed to do, and I just need to take it from here. Either way, the answer is wrong, because Jesus is everything, as we're going to find out in a moment. It is in Jesus that we find our ultimate satisfaction, both now and in the age to come. About 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, came into the world. This is what marked Christmas Day for the world. Emmanuel, God, with us. This morning, we're going to look at three reasons why Jesus came into the world. And I know there are several reasons that we can go into why Jesus came into the world. So as I prayed about it, I really narrowed this down to two. The third is really a byproduct of that of that reason why Jesus came. But really, there's, there's two. The third is really for us. First, Jesus came to manifest God's righteousness. And this is in your bulletins, if you want to pull it out and take notes as we go. First, Jesus came to manifest God's righteousness. He destroys the works of the devil. Secondly, he came to manifest God's love among us he is our propitiation, and I will get into what that means in a minute. And lastly, he came to manifest God's love in us. So he manifests God's love among us, and then he manifests God's love in us, as his spirit is now at work in his children. And I, I often bring these notes to my wife, and she's a good sounding board for me, and she's, she's a lot more aware of the, the things that are going on in the world, and and in the church, she's a researcher and all that. And this word manifest, as it turns out, has become kind of a, a trigger word for some people because this word manifest in, in prosperity, health, wealth, prosperity circles is one of these things where, where if you want something to happen, you, you can manifest it. You can bring it about, and you can make it a reality in your life. And all you have to do is, is do it through, through prayer, prayer, through faith, by waking up in the morning and just repeating words after words after words. And so this word manifest has become like a manifest theology. If you want to see something done that kind of defeats your own selfish appetite, you can manifest that by praying. That's not what we mean by manifest. We're going, to, we're going to redeem that word this morning, that word manifest, because John loves to use the word manifest. John uses the word manifest more than any other author in the Bible. He uses it in the Gospel account of John, and he uses it here in 1 John, which is the passage that we're going to be looking at ...this morning. And in the context of this passage that we're going to look at, I want to define it this way for you. Manifest is the obvious display of God's character in His appearing. Let me say that again. The obvious display of God's character in His appearing. And with that, let's rise and let's do the reading of the Word of God. See, we come and we're centered around the Word of God here at Timberline Baptist. this This is really central to everything we do. The truth that we proclaim... The, the, the God that we pray to is found right here in the Bible, and I'm going to be reading two uh, relatively large passages, First John chapter 3 and then First John chapter 4. Let's start in First John chapter 3 and verse 1. This is the word of the living God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And now I'm, I'm moving forward to First John chapter four, starting in verse seven. "Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Father, we thank you for the love that's been made manifest in this world through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we live on this side of the cross. We get to look back and see the reality and the marvelous works of Jesus Christ as he worked on our behalf, and not just on ours, but on behalf of anyone who put their faith either in the coming Messiah or the one who has already come. Lord, love and hope and peace and joy, there is a name, and his name is Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. First, let us consider in verse 8 of chapter 3 of 1 John, what Jesus, why Jesus came into the world. And it's for this reason, to manifest God's righteousness. Notice, the reason, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. John is stating something here that's extremely significant in this passage when he says the reason that God appeared, he's about to answer the question for us, why the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Why did Jesus appear? Why Christmas? The eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, God who exists, who has always existed, entered into the stream of human history, and he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, miraculously born of the Virgin Mary, this Son who is always God, came into the world as a human being, mystery of mysteries. Fully God, fully human. And for those who love these theological terms, this is called hypostatic union. This is where Jesus manifests both the fullness of God, 100% God, and the fullness of humanity, 100% man. This God-man appeared for this reason, it says, to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy something, and that something is the works of the devil. And that begs the question, doesn't it? What are the works of the devil? And John focuses us most clearly on the works of the devil in verse 4 when he says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And then in verse 5 he says, You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And then again in verse 8, The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the very beginning. Verse 10, It is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. The works of the devil, as we just read, dates back to the very beginning when that serpent of Ol, Satan, in, Satan, in the garden, came and brought about his deception. He distorted God's truth He tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, and he led the first couple in humanity into sin. He brought about enmity between God and between people, and he brought brought enmity between us and other people. This is what John Piper has to say about it. He says, when people commit sin, it's the work of the devil. The work of the devil is to tempt people to sin. When they sin, his work is accomplished. You see, because Satan has a gross disregard for God's law which the Apostle John calls lawlessness. The works of the devil is lawlessness. You see, there was a time in the very beginning when God said, it is very good. It was very good. There was peace. And there's this word that the Jewish culture loves to use to describe this sort of peace, and the word is shalom, And maybe you've heard it. This is a greeting that people often like to use. This is a word that everything is just in its right place. It's designed exactly the way that God had intended it to be. There was once a time in human history where peace like this, peace like shalom, existed in reality. And among people. And everything was in its proper place. God communed with Adam and Eve. And it was beautiful but it only lasted for a very short time because in Genesis chapter 3 we read the deception of sin that entered into the world. It's that heart-wrenching moment in the garden when God arrives in the cool of day to commune with Adam and Eve. Only this time, they're nowhere to be found. They're not excited To see God. No, they're hiding. They're hiding in shame. And they're hiding in fear. And they're hiding in guilt. Because sin has entered the world. Deception has entered the world. Peace has been crushed by the works of the devil. Enmity with God. And enmity with others because of this unfortunate reality. You see, the creative order was broken, peace was broken, and in the history to follow, people have sought to accomplish whatever kind of peace they can accomplish on their own, even though only God can provide this kind of peace. And let's look briefly at how the works of the devil impacted the world. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loincloths. This is the first attempt in human history to have somebody try and cover themselves. And it's 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 odd to me that this couple has been naked the whole time. And they eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and now suddenly they see that they're naked and they feel like they need to cover themselves. And what this represents and tells us is that when they ate of the fruit, they needed a covering. You see, because their sins had become fully exposed before God. And I could just see them scrambling around the garden asking themselves the question, what are we going to do? And so they find that fig leaf off of the tree and they pull it off and they cover themselves. And then God comes and seeks them out and they're nowhere to be found. But you know, it's not much longer in chapter 3 when this beautiful passage comes to mind. Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was a mother of all the living. And listen to this. And the Lord God made Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them because there is only one God in this world. The living and true God who can cover sins. We cannot cover our sins. That is the harsh reality that we're all faced with. But God, God covers sin. And it requires a sacrifice. The first animal sacrifice recorded in the Bible right here. He took that animal and he covered them with the skin of the animal. Psalm 32 verse 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. God covers sins. And look, it didn't get better because in chapter 4, we read of the first murder. Remember that, Cain? Murdered his brother Abel. And then in chapter 5, this is what I like to call the he died chapter. This is a chapter where virtually every single verse ends with, and he died. There's death now that has entered into the world, except for that one man, Enoch, who was taken up, who became for us, as we know through our Hebrew study, an example of faith. And then in chapter 6, we read of one of the most sorrowful and depressing images of God's attitude for humanity. And I want to read that to you. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in all the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to the heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have even made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord because God's promises are true. And when he said, through the seed of the woman, I would bring the Messiah, God holds true to every single promise, and so he redeemed this man Noah for a greater purpose. And why did God regret making man and why did it grieve him to his heart it's for this reason because the wickedness of man was great in all the earth and that every intention of the thoughts and the hearts of man was evil continually. These are the works that Jesus came to destroy. And in case you think this is limited only to the Old Testament There is a parallel passage in Romans chapter 3 and in verse 9 through 26. In verse 9, Paul says that we are all under sin. We are all under sin. And what does it mean to be under sin? Well, it means that sin is not just something that's scratching us on the surface. We are all under the burden, the pollution, and the power of sin. The weight is so heavy that we find ourselves buried in it. The biblical diagnosis of you and of me is that all of us, apart from the work of Christ, are under the oppressive domination and curse of sin. We are helpless, we are hopeless, and we are utterly desperate under the weight of sin that is piled on top of us. Sin is a tyrant. And we become altogether exposed to the righteousness and the judgment of God and the burden of our guilt. Listen, we need a covering and the fig leaves will not do it. Paul goes on to summarize God's view of humanity in verse 10 through 8. He says, there is no one who's righteous. No, not one. He has to repeat that comment because inevitably there's someone in the congregation who says, well, you know, there is at least one. No, Paul says there is not one. He repeats, no, not one, because when we are weighed in the balance of God's righteousness, all of us are found wanting. When weighed according to God's divine standard of righteousness, how do we measure up? You see, that Santa complex, it just went out the window. Because you no, longer get to, you no longer get to judge yourself according to the curve, according to the people around you, and find someone who's less righteous than you, therefore, you're good to go. Because we're not measured according to that, we're measured according to God who judges. You don't get to do your own self-evaluation, God evaluates your righteousness. You see, because God doesn't gauge your righteousness relative to other people, he judges it according to his perfect law. His measurement is his perfect law. If you feel that you can somehow add even an ounce, a drop of righteousness, even to the smallest degree and tip that scale at all, then one of two things is true. One, you don't understand how holy God is. Or two, you don't understand how unholy you are. God is righteous. You see, there are two camps of people in this world. There are those who rely strictly on the grace of Jesus Christ. There's just Jesus. And then there's everyone else including those people who say, Jesus plus, you know, like, I don't want to get rid of Jesus. I'm just going to add him to my arsenal of everything else that I need to earn my way into heaven. But God doesn't work that way because there is only one covering that will cover your sin, and his name is Jesus Christ. No one is righteous. And in case you didn't get it the first time, he says, no, not one. And apart from divine intervention, there is no righteousness found in you. Paul goes on to say, no one understands. You see, not only are we unholy, but we are hopelessly ignorant of God. It doesn't matter how well or how taught a person is. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses you've memorized. It doesn't matter your PhD. It doesn't matter whether you have a seminary degree or an ordination. It doesn't matter how high your IQ is. It doesn't matter what your scores are on the SAT, ACT, LSAT, GMAT, whatever other acronyms you want to add to the course of your name in the context of your job situation. Apart from God, you know nothing of value because God is value. God is our righteousness. No one hungers or thirsts for God. And not only that, but no one seeks for God. Seeking God is the business of a born-again believer. This is why it drives me off the wall when you have churches that are undergoing this quote-unquote seeker-sensitive movement in the church. Maybe you've heard of this. There are churches who are organizing their worship. They're organizing their messages and programming around the assumption that unbelievers might show up. And we don't want to offend those people. So we're going to generate all kinds of entertainment. We're going to provide a fluffy word that's just empty. Because God forbid we offend an unbeliever. But this right here, what's happening this morning in this room, is for God. It's for his people to worship and exalt our Savior and King the Lord Jesus Christ, and in that we find our ultimate satisfaction. Jesus Christ, God in Christ, is our reward, and we get to enjoy Him for eternity. People's basic problem, listen to this, is not lack of self esteem. It's not that somehow they're out of sync between them and God. Our problem is that without God, we are incapable. Of pleasing him. The wages of sin is what? Death. Romans 6.23. We were all once considered sons of disobedience. Okay, because in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 3 it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. God is righteousness, and apart from God, we are not. But listen, though. There is good news. Right? I mean, this is the hard part. Is like, you got to share the bad news. Because how can you bring the good news if you can't contrast that against the desperately horrible news of sin and the works of the devil? Because in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21, listen to this and listen closely. But now, this was listen to this to show god's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus christ the works of the devil has been destroyed by god's righteousness by jesus christ and it was necessary that he would come into the world in the form of man to be that righteousness for you and for me. I mean, have you ever wondered in your mind, what is it that makes our death different from the death of Jesus Christ? You see, the reason why we die is because it's the consequence of sin. Jesus didn't die as a consequence of sin. Jesus died because he was the redeemer of the sin. You see, ours is the consequence. Jesus' is the payment. Did you get that? Like, his death was the righteousness of God, the rightful payment, the death that you could not die. Jesus died. Jesus lived the perfect life. He was tempted, and yet without sin, one man's sin brought death into the whole world through Adam. One God-man's death now brings life. Jesus had to come into the world for that very purpose. That brings me now to my second point. Jesus came into the world to manifest God's love among us. Jesus came into the world to manifest God's love among us. Listen to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest. The love of God, obvious now that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This word, propitiation, this is an expression that God chose to love us with. It is the word that puts people on their knees. It is a word that answers the greatest questions It answers the question to the problem that we're all faced with, and it answers what theologians have called the divine dilemma. This word is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It answers this question for us. If God is holy, and if God is just, how can he forgive the wicked? Do you see the divine dilemma? Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both like an abomination to the Lord. I mean, there's not a worse word than abomination to describe the person who justifies the wicked. If God is holy and if God is just, he cannot forgive you. he can't have fellowship with you. If God is holy and if God is just, he cannot forgive men because men are wicked. And the judge of this world must do right. I mean, put yourself in my shoes for a minute. Just imagine the most heinous crime. You or a loved one witnessing something horrible happening in front of you. And that person is now in front of the judge. And the judge says, you know what? I love you, and for that reason, I'm just going to let you go. Now, look, if you are the victim of that crime, you are not going to stop short of going to everybody in your neighborhood, the governor, your parents, everybody, and you're going to say there must be justice to be served. How can you just let them go? You see, it's not right to say, See, God could have punished you, but instead he chose to love you. No, God loves you, yes, but God is just as well. God is just, and God is loving. God's servant Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, Behold, you were angry, and we sinned, and in our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind, they take us away. And he poses to us a very important question. How can anyone be saved? Is that it? I mean, where do we go from here? The divine dilemma. Well, you see, it is for this reason why the Bible says, Blessed are the feet of those who preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I come and I bring you tidings of comfort and joy. Because there is forgiveness that God offers. Because the divine dilemma is answered in this one word. The propitiation. God manifests his love. In that he sent his son to be the propitiation. God's love is powerful. His love is selfish, selfless rather. His love covers a multitude of sins. God's love works miracles and his love overcomes. It overcomes even the greatest dilemma. So let me ask it in. How does God forgive wicked men and still be considered just? It is in this way, a propitiation. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but God loved us. This is how the appearing of Jesus destroys the works of the devil. You see, God's justice demands that we die. Our sins deserve the wrath and holy judgment of God. This is just a simple fact, and it just seems like no matter how many people I talk to, they don't want to believe this, but it's true. God is holy, and he is just, but God But God, the second person of the Trinity, comes into the world, incarnate, to take on the very death that you and I deserve. This is how God can be both just and the justifier. Jesus is the very person that many of God's redeemed people of old were hoping for. They long to see him, and they long to know him. And we know him because we get to look back and see the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that God's love overruled his justice. God's love does not nullify his justice. God didn't choose to love us in lieu of his justice. God is love and God is just. Jesus came into the world conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary in humility Jesus came into the world in the form of man, which was necessary for you and for me because he came to die. On the cross, the worst form of capital punishment in the history of the world by God's design, came to die on the cross. For to us, a child is born and a son is given. Isaiah 9, 6. So then the fullness of God's love, the fullness of God's grace, the fullness of God's justice was made manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. This is why Pastor Nick said last Friday, you cannot separate the birth of Jesus Christ and the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, every sinful thing about me, inside and out, has been placed on the Lord Jesus Christ. My debt has been charged now to his account. You see, because he became my target Jesus became my lust. He became my lying. He became my murderous heart. He became my anger and so much more. He bore the wrath of God in my place. And he appeased the almighty God. He is, as we like to say in this congregation, my wrath absorber. He is my propitiation, my wrath Absorber, the fullness of God's wrath laid on the Son, and not a pinch, not a pinch of his wrath reserved for you or for me. The punishment of Jesus was exhausted on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ, and it pleased God, it says in Isaiah chapter 3 verse 10, it pleased God to crush him because he died for you and for me. Now, church family, I want you to listen to what John has to say very closely. In, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, listen to this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. You see, Satan likes to use our sin against us, doesn't he? You see, when we were in our studies of Hebrews chapter 2, and particularly verse 14, we learned that people fear death, and the reason for that fear is that we know that when we die, we are going to be faced with judgment, and Satan is crafty, and he is clever, and he can do all kinds of things, but his biggest weapon, his primary weapon that he likes to use against you and me is our sin, our sins are what bring us condemnation. And I know as a fact that there are a number of you in this congregation who have prayed and you've received Jesus Christ and you walk in newness of faith, but you are struck with fear because Satan continues to use your sin against you. These are the works of the devil. Satan will tell you you're no good. And if you don't believe me, just look in the mirror. You don't measure up. To who God is. He says God could never love someone like you. Look at what you've done. Look at your sins and how many times you've failed. You cannot possibly love someone like you. You are too bad. You are too wicked. You are too vile. You are simply unlovable. Satan is the capital A accuser. But listen to me closely and listen to me now. You must understand that what Satan is doing in that is he's arguing an argument that is invalid. It's invalid. There is no longer any basis for that argument because God died for that. He destroyed the works of the devil and he didn't just bruise the works of the devil. He didn't just soften the works of the devil. He destroyed it, it says. When he died on the cross and he said it is finished, he meant it is done. The works of the devil destroyed for anyone who had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It is impossible for the child of God to be condemned. There is not a pinch of wrath left for you. Jesus says there is no fear because there is no punishment. There is no punishment because there is no sin. Jesus died and he paid it in full. He says not the part, but the whole. There is no punishment. There is no fear for anyone who puts their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ. And you can confidently say it is well with my soul. You know, try this out sometime. When you're greeting somebody and they ask you, hey, how's everything going? Just say out loud, I'm doing well. Okay, and when you say I'm doing well, I want you to consider in your mind for a moment, I'm doing well because it is well with my soul. And tell me that will not change your day. I don't care what kind of mood you're in. If somebody comes up to you and says, how are you doing? You say, I'm doing well. It changes a person, okay? Because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil for you and me. There is no greater gift than the gift of Jesus Christ. To you who are suffering with fear of condemnation, how much is there left for God to pay? The answer is, there's nothing left to pay. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God Do you believe in the good news of the appearing of the Son of God, and does it make a difference in your life? What God did was not an accident. God willingly put those sins that bring you shame, and he covered them by the valuable and precious blood of Jesus Christ. The Son willingly took that sin upon himself to die for you and to die for me. It is the Son who says, you don't take my life. I willingly give my life. It is the Son who the Bible says did not despise the cross. It is the Son who says there is no greater love than this that one would lay down his life for his friends. We are friends. Friends of God. If you are in Christ Jesus, the blood of Jesus has cleansed you of every sin All of heaven rejoices at the thought that you are now a redeemed person by the work of Jesus Christ. The Son has made an end to all your sin. Trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, trust in the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. I know that I am forgiven. You know, it puts me on my knees. Bill Gaither said it well in a song. This is a, a songwriter. This is what he wrote. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made where every stock of earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry? Nor could the scroll contain the whole those stretch from sky to sky. You are loved. I mean, it is the season to be reminded that you are loved by God. And you are not only loved, but you are children of God. You are friends of God. Which brings me to my final point. Jesus came to the world to not only manifest his righteousness, not only to manifest his love among us, but to manifest his love in us. Okay, and I'm going to make this very simple, this third point, because it's odd to me, and it really is a great mystery, and this should be true for all of us, including myself, that we receive this truth, that God made a way when there was no other way I mean, the only way to escape God's judgment was through God. And yet, when Christmas rolls around, or we're reminded around these things, forgiveness just goes out the window. You know, like, God did this for you. And to think that we're just going to trample on that. You see, God now gives us his spirit you no longer have to operate according to your own interests and according to your own abilities because God gave you the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of forgiveness, the Spirit of love, the Spirit of patience, long-bearing, all that now wrapped up in the Spirit now lives in you. You are the dwelling place of God, God in us, the Holy Catholic Church established by God's Spirit now in us. Notice in 1 John chapter 4, And in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love of God, sorry, that the love that God has for us, God is love, it says, and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love, listen to this, because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, listen to this, and if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, who he sees, like I see you, brother and sister in Christ. And I can love you with a tangible and obvious kind of love. If I can't love you in that way, how am I supposed to love God who I can't see? And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You see, it's conjoined at the hip. Your love is, manifest, is the manifestation of God's love in this world now. It is inseparable. God loves you, you love God, and now your love creates the manifestation Of God in this world and you cannot love a person more than sharing with them the gospel the good news there is time you know when we we lit the candle on the, the Christmas Eve service we were all the way in the back of the room me and my family and that song was going and I remember thinking to myself what if that song ends before that candle makes it back I mean, not only am I going to have to do something with my kids, but it reminded me we got such limited time, friends. I mean, God didn't just place you in this world to just enjoy the things of this world, He put you in this world to present the fantastic news of Jesus Christ, the gospel now made manifest among us and in us in Christ. Let's pray.